guy was dehydrated? <laughs> Give that brother some water. He needs it. <laughs> you do? Well, you should have never said that, sister. <laughs> you just opened a Pandora's box. <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. It's a smaller crowd, but that's what happens when you have a men's retreat and all the guys are, most of the guys are up there. I will tell you that the Lord moved in a mighty way during the retreat. Uh, we received a lot from the Lord up there, so it was a great experience. And I'm happy to be back here and sharing something with you. Before we begin, I'd like to open in a word of prayer, um, because I can't do anything without the Lord. And to be honest with you, I want to step completely out of the way, and I just want the Lord to have his way in this service. So I ask that you join with me in, with that uh, in mind. Heavenly Father, as I said, I want to get out of the way, Lord, and I just want this to be about you and what you want to say. We can get my mind in the mix and thoughts that I might have and me feeling the necessity to speak those words, God, but I just want to speak what you want. I do believe you laid a message on my heart. I presented it at the men's retreat, and from the previous service, Lord, I think it's uh, consistent with, with what you want and what the people need. So, God, I pray that I would bring it out in the way that you would have me bring it out. And I thank you for what you've done in our midst, and I thank you for what you're going to do moving forward. I say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I'm going to discuss something that is as applicable to me as it is to many Christians, maybe even you. In other words, I'm going to be preaching to the choir as much as I'm preaching to you. I entitled this message, Let It Begin With Me. I'm going to discuss something that isn't mentioned nearly as much as it was most recently in the late 1960s, early 70s, and even more a few centuries before that. During very specific periods in our nation's history, it was a household word that was used in the vast majority of Christian homes. I'm talking about a process that is life-changing, regenerating and reinvigorating. And sadly, because many Christians are prone to go back to their old ways or because they, like the proverbial dog, return to their vomit, this process is not as long-lasting as it should be. Thus, the heightened usage of the word during some critical points in our history. What's sadder yet is the fact that in many churches in this country, the need for this process is not even recognized. And rest assured, the church, the body of Christ, is in dire need of it. The truth is, we may need it now more than ever. The church is so different now. I you know, raised a daughter, and I've shared that with her and with my wife. Not only is the mention of this desperately needing process less frequent, but its meaning or focus has been radically changed. The focus has become more about us and what we're going to get out of it rather than how it relates to God and what it will do for him and for others when it occurs. It's becoming increasingly obvious that the sense of entitlement mentality and that human-centered rather than God-centered approach to Christianity is becoming prevalent. It's crept in our church. I suppose I should tell you what I'm talking about if you haven't already figured it out. I'm talking about revival. That topic has been on my mind a great deal as of late, primarily because that was the theme of the men's retreat. 
The theme was revive us again. Revival. That's a word from a long time ago. As I previously suggested, it's kind of an old school word. And the associated process is is to some old school and maybe even obsolete. I don't agree with that, but I think that's kind of the mentality that you see today. If you haven't been a Christian for very long, it's quite possible you've never even heard that word. Since there has been a radical change in perspective regarding the meaning of the word revival and the associated process, let me, let me define it for you. Because it seems like when we step away from the fundamentals, that's when we really kind of lose sight of things. So the fundamental definition of revival, according to Merriam-Webster, is an act or instance of reviving. The state of being revived, such as renewed attention to or interest in something, a new presentation or publication of something old, a period of renewed religious interest, an often highly emotional evangelistic meeting or series of meetings, restoration of force, validity, or effect. Certainly some of those definitions apply to the religious movements or revivals that took place in our history. There was a renewed interest in the things of God. Those events were highly emotional as folks recognized where they were in their relationship with the Lord. They realized that a chasm had developed between them and God. A gap, a distance was created. And as a result of that, they were sincerely repentant and remorseful. And at least for a season, there was a restoration of force, validity, and effect in their Christian walk. They did not just talk the talk. They walked the walk. They were more than weekend warriors. They actually lived as Christians between Sundays. The root of the word revival is all about life, vigor, energy, vitality. And revival is all about being reinvigorated, re-energized, and revitalized. It's about bringing one back to life or consciousness. It's really kind of an awakening of sorts. And interestingly enough, that is precisely what the major religious revivals in America were called. They were referred to as the Great Awakenings. The first Great Awakening, and I want to get into this to lay a little groundwork for, for the message, and you'll clearly see why, because there's a general theme throughout these. The first Great Awakening, by most accounts, began during the, 19, or I'm sorry, the 1730s. It was seen as a spiritual renewal that swept through the colonies. The impetus behind the First Great Awakening was the establishment of the Church of England as the reigning church in the American colonies. They wanted to have one church. Britain wanted it to just be this one church. They will be the exclusive or sole church, the Church of England. So men such as John and Charles Wesley and George Whitefield spoke out against the complacency in lukewarmness that had become prevalent in the church. They sought to call people back to their heartfelt convictions thereby stimulating greater intimacy in their relationship with God. That great awakening was the motivation behind the country's independence from the tyranny of Britain and from the Church of England. 
Now, did you know that several of our Ivy League universities and other universities were founded as religious institutions during that time? I don't know that most people realize that. I actually didn't recognize that, that, at least for some of them, that that occurred back then. They were founded during that time, and they were based upon biblical principles. It's very interesting. You've all heard probably of Princeton University. That was one of them. Its Latin motto on its crest still reads, Dei subnumini viget, which translates, under God's power, she flourishes. Do you see that? This university, this college, you know, because it started off as kind of a log college. It was just a small setup. Well, we're not going to flourish unless we're under God and under his power. It's incredible. These universities have become secularized now. Our forefathers, if they were to see this, they'd probably roll over in their graves. It's kind of amazing what has transformed over the years. According to Wikipedia, the Second Great Awakening began around 1790, gained momentum by 1800, and after 1820, membership rose rapidly among Baptist and Methodist congregations whose preachers led the movement. It was past its peak by the late 1850s. Post-millennialism was the prevailing theology of the time. Adherents believed that Christ would return to reign after the millennium. And it was their responsibility to purify society by ending sinful practices and upholding the will of God. This movement witnessed numerous camp meetings and revivals across the nation. And interestingly enough, it strongly influenced the emancipation. So you see that these things are starting where it's affecting individuals who then affect their communities, who affected the entire nation and impacted social and political issues in a major, major way. The Third Great Awakening was characterized by a large group of national revivals from 1850 to 1920 that had as their origin lay prayer services. According to author Titus Folks in his article, The Third Great Awakening, 1850 to 1920, these prayer meetings impacted the rest of this revival era. Directly, the revival produced 50,000 converts by May 1859. Indirectly, this movement served to energize missions organizations, Sunday schools, and, su and churches. Notable products of this wave of evangelism and church involvement include the Salvation Army, the YMCA, the China Inland Mission, and many others. And a couple of other developments during that time as D.L. Moody became a worldwide evangelist and you had the rise of Pentecostalism. And that latter grew out of the holiness revival. Holiness followers became increasingly concerned with the godlessness that they observed in many of the church members of mainstream denominations. They sought spiritual perfection in Christ. They experienced a renewed outpouring of the Holy Spirit, much like we read, read about in the book of Acts. Now, according to some scholars, the Fourth Great Awakening took place in the United States in the late 60s and early 70s. Some maintain that the Jesus movement, whose members were referred to as Jesus freaks or Jesus people, occurred during the Fourth Great Awakening. And I think you can effectively argue that point because that evangelical movement that began on the west coast of the United States and moved throughout the entire nation into Central America and Europe 
also began at that time. This era called Christians back to a more biblical walk with God in which the fruits and gifts of the Spirit were more readily witnessed and more evident in the lives of the followers of Christ. This great awakening has done much to shape the contemporary evangelical movement. I'm confident if Chuck Smith were alive today, the founder of Calvary Chapel, he would agree with my assertion wholeheartedly. Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard Movement emerged during that period in our history. I gave my heart to the Lord during the Jesus Movement. I was raised in a Christian home, so I was always around, you know, talk of the Bible, and, and my parents were good examples of what a Christian life looks like. So there was a point where I'm like, you know, I, I realize I'm raising this, but I suppose I should be repenting and asking for God to come into my heart as well. And Joseph, uh, who leads worship, him and I were talking about it because we were both raised in Christian homes, and you just kind of come to the realization, I, I don't become saved by osmosis. I, <laughs> you know, I have to participate in this. And so there was a point, and it happened to be during this time, that I actually gave my heart to the Lord. My dad had a youth group during that period, and I will tell you that we observed the hand of God move in a mighty way on a very regular basis. Many young people came to the Lord as a result of that ministry. 90%, and I may be conservative with that number, 90% of the members of that youth group were baptized in the Holy Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues. We saw the gifts of the Spirit move in every service. I'll say nearly. Again, that's probably conservative. There was something going on. Tongues interpretation, prophecy, word of knowledge. We saw healings. Many of the kids were healed from various maladies. Many were delivered from demonic possession. We saw some amazing things in there. And I will tell you that as a result of what I saw, I'm a Christian today. That has largely impacted my decision to remain a follower of Jesus Christ. I was introduced to him in a big way. And I never forgot it. I thank him on a regular basis <laughs> with tear-filled eyes because I considered it a privilege to have been a part of that. Thank you, God, for making me privy to that. Honestly, and sadly, I haven't seen anything like it since. If you notice what I've discussed thus far, and certainly from the articles that I read, there is a common theme that is pervading every one of these great revivals or great awakenings that encompass many great revivals. You see the recognition of a church that had become complacent and lukewarm, whose members were merely going through the motions. You see their desire to put an end to sinful practices and to uphold the will of God. You see the recognition of godlessness and a need for spiritual perfection in Christ. You need... You see this need to get back to conservative values rather than embracing worldly compromise. The people recognized how the thoughts they entertain, the words that fall from their lips, and the deeds they committed were vastly different than what they observed in the perfect example set by our Lord. They recognized just how holy God is and how unholy they were. They felt a strong conviction to pursue holiness. The people responded to their heartfelt convictions, humbly repented of their sins, and witnessed the hand of God move in their lives in a mighty, mighty way, in a major way. What happened to these individuals reached their churches, their community, and ultimately 
the entire nation. Do you get it? It started on an individual level and moved out from there. That same type of spiritual reviving can be witnessed in the hearts of two important biblical figures. Consider the prophet Isaiah and what he saw in a vision prior to the extraordinary commission God gave him to prophesy to the Jews who were at that time very guilty of sin. And they had a a tendency to turn a deaf ear to a prophet. Allow me to read for you Isaiah 6, 1 through 9. It reads, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy. This was a practice of the Jews in writing. When they said something three times, they were really emphasizing what was going on. This is a big thing here. God is holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. I believe Isaiah was stupefied. By the beautiful chorus of exultation he heard and the magnificent spectacle he observed, he was immediately conscious of his wretched and unholy condition in comparison to the seraphim, not to mention how he saw himself in comparison to a pure, righteous, and holy God. He thought himself to be utterly undone and his death imminent because he had seen God. In reality, He did not see God face to face, only an image of him. But he was fearful of it because he believed to have seen God. It was so real to him, so vivid was the vision that he thought, I've seen God face to face, I'm surely going to die because only the pure in heart see God. So even though it was just a vision, such was the impression he, he had of himself and his value as it related to a pure, righteous, and holy God that he considered himself as good as dead. While being a man of unclean lips and living among a people of unclean lips, while seeing himself as detestable and any offering he might bring as foul and a stench in the nostrils of a pure, righteous, and holy God, while standing at the precipice of the chasm that existed between his righteousness or his holiness and that of God's, while undoubtedly experiencing profound helplessness, hopelessness, despair, and fear, he cried out, Woe is me, 
I'm dead. He was humbled by the holiness he witnessed in the Lord. The holiness that stood in stark contrast to that of his own. He cried out to the Lord in complete recognition of his unworthiness. The Lord removed his sin and revived him. He was arguably one of the most effective and powerful prophets of the Old Testament. Started off with humility and recognition of his unworthiness. God forgave him, revived him, and look how effective he was. Consider the humility, regret, sorrow, and sincere repentance David demonstrated after he was called on the, pro- on the carpet by the prophet Nathan after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and for positioning her husband Uriah on the battlefield in such a way that his demise was, was certain. Allow me to read for you Psalm 51, 1 through 17. It reads, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David acknowledged that what he did was wrong. Isn't that the first step in recovery? You've got to recognize that there's a problem there. So he acknowledges it. You're right, God, I'm wrong. He recognized that the sin he committed was quite noticeable by a holy God. I think sometimes we forget that because we're wrapped up in in grace. We think, and I'm not knocking grace, trust me on that. But I think we forget that this is a holy God that we're dealing with. He cannot tolerate sin. And so he recognized, I have sin in my life, and this is very obvious. Something that's interesting is the sign of someone being truly penitent is that everywhere they go or whatever they do, sin is always before them. They always recognize it. Have you ever had sin in your life? You've done something wrong? I don't care where you go or what you're doing. You can't get it out of your mind. It's ever before you. If you truly are repentant and you're sorrowful for what you've done, it's like you can't shake it. It's just there. And the interesting part, David says, it's ever before me. He recognized that it was the one thing that stood between him and God. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. The God's word translation reads, so you hand down justice when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. He's saying, I've made a mistake. What you're saying is right on the money. Whatever you would deal out, I know you're a just God and I have it coming. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. By saying this, it's clear that David recognized that God is only satisfied with truth and purity in our hearts. And he clearly recognized how polluted his heart had become. And in the hidden part, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew, revive 
a right spirit within me. Renew, revive. It was there once. Bring it back again. Cast me not away from thine presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Restore, revive, reinvigorate the joy that I once had when I walked in accordance with your will and not after the lusts of my flesh. Restore what I once had when rebellion and sin didn't exist in my heart. And uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Because of your loving kindness, because you temper justice with mercy, I will teach sinners to consider their transgressions. And they will be converted because no one will be able to deny what you've done for me and what you did in me. I don't know if there's any better prayer of repentance than this psalm. You want revival? I propose to you that the initiation of an individual revival looks a whole lot like when you initially gave your heart to the Lord or when you were initially saved. There was a prompting by the Holy Spirit. Didn't Jesus say, no one can come unto me except the Father draws him? You felt a a prodding, a nudging for you to go that direction. I recall it myself. You began to recognize your wretched condition in contrast to a holy God. You also recognized that something was missing. You were humbled by his love, grace, and mercy. You were contrite like David. You asked him to forgive you and to take residence in your heart, and he did. Revival begins with a recognition of your condition and a subsequent turning away from your sins. That is clearly seen in 2 Chronicles 7.14, and many of you know that. It reads, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves. We saw humility in all these four great awakenings. We saw humility with Isaiah and David. Will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Isn't that the very definition of repentance? Isn't repentance a change of mind, a 180 degree turnaround? You turn from your wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. You see, if is a conditional word. It precedes a conditional phrase. If you do this, which is a condition, then this. So then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. It starts with humility on an individual basis. It starts as a recognition of your own sin that exists in your life. You crying out for forgiveness, he forgives, and then ultimately what does he do? He doesn't just heal you, he heals the land because you take with you what he's done and it makes a difference. Those with whom you come in contact recognize something's different, something changed in this person. Revival begins with repentance. Let it begin with me. Consider that five of the seven churches spoken of in the book of Revelations were admonished by the Lord to repent, or at the very least, he identified some very specific sin that existed among them. And he didn't just identify it to say, hey, there's your sin. He identified it so that they could address it. Again, isn't that the beginning of change, the beginning of repentance? You've got to recognize that you have a problem. 
So he identified it for them. If they expected to experience a spiritual revival or a renewal, they were going to have to do some house cleaning before that could occur. To the church in Ephesus, the Lord said, but this is what I have against you. You do not love me now as you did at first. Think how far you have fallen. Turn from your sins and do what you did at first. If you don't turn from your sins, I will come to you and take your lampstand from its place. To the church in Pergamum, he said, but there are a few things I have against you. There are some among you who follow the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to how to lead the people of Israel into sin by persuading them to eat food that had been offered to idols and to practice sexual immorality. In the same way, you have people among you who follow the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now turn from your sins. If you don't, I will come to you soon and fight against those people with the sword that comes out of my mouth. To the church in Thyatira, he said, but this is what I have against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a messenger of God. What do you think of when you hear the word Jezebel or the name Jezebel? And straight up, you think of a whore. What did God have against her? They're not certain whether this is an actual woman or it's a representation of sexual immorality. Well, when you look at that on a spiritual level, are we not the bride of Christ? And if we place other things before him, are we not committing spiritual adultery? Are we not cheating on him, so to speak? If he's no longer on the altar of your attention and doesn't hold a position in, in your priorities, at the pinnacle of your priorities, you're cheating on him. You stepped outside of the relationship because you placed somebody before him. He's a jealous God and he has no tolerance for it. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into practicing sexual immorality and eating food that has been offered to idols. I have given her time to repent of her sins, but she does not want to return from her immorality. And so I will throw her on a bed where she and those who committed adultery with her will suffer terribly. I will do this now unless they repent of the wicked things they did with her. This is what the Lord had to say to the church in Sardis. I know what you are doing. I know that you have a reputation of being alive even though you are dead. So wake up and strengthen what you still have before it dies completely. For I find that what you have done is not yet perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you were taught and what you heard. Obey it and turn from your sins. If you do not wake up, I will come unto you like a thief, and you will not even know the time when I will come. Finally, to the church in Laodicea, which is according to many, a representation of where we are in this particular church era. According to many, it's representative of the church today. He said, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He also said to this church, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Be zealous with your repentance. I've read numerous articles from Charles Spurgeon. He's no longer with us. The man was amazing. The legacy he left behind is certainly worth looking into. 
This is what he wrote in an article he entitled, What is Revival? He said, it is a sorrowful fact that many who are spiritually alive greatly need reviving. It is sorrowful because it is proof of the existence of much spiritual evil. He also wrote, for a church to be constantly needing revival is the indication of much sin. In the same article, he wrote, many of God's people are in so sad a state that the very fittest prayer for them is for revival. Some Christians are spiritually, but barely alive. He wrote that article in 1866. If he was still alive, can you imagine what he would say today? Revival is all about a prompting by the Holy Spirit that triggers humble introspection, followed by a willful and purposeful response to your heartfelt convictions that comes in the form of genuine repentance. Subsequently, a repentant soul receives forgiveness of their sin or sins by a loving, gracious, merciful, and holy God. In addition, they experience ultimate reinvigoration or a reviving of their spiritual man. I want what I saw and haven't seen for over nearly for probably nearly 40 years. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You were around back then. The author of Hebrews wrote, Jesus, the same yesterday and today and forever. So if that's true, and I believe the Bible to be inerrant, I believe it to be true, why aren't we seeing what I used to see on a regular basis? I propose that the Lord didn't go anywhere. We did. Christianity isn't a game of hide-and-seek the Lord plays with Christians. Christianity is about seek and find. Are we seeking him like we should be? When we seek him, we will find him, and he will forgive us, and he will revive us. There are many who have what the Apostle Paul warned Timothy about in 2 Timothy 3.5. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. He even warned, from such, turn away. By virtue of how they are living their lives outside of church, by virtue of the compromises they have made and tolerances they have demonstrated on a personal level and in many of the churches in America, they are denying the spirit access. I'm not suggesting that God is not omnipresent. He's there. They just blanket him. He can't move in our services because he's not a forceful God. And if you aren't living your life in accordance with his will, if there's sin that exists in your life, your very actions blanket the Holy Spirit. I want to be sure that my thoughts and my words and my deeds don't veil that spiritual man that's in me. We have to be mindful of the fact that we are new creations in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, not for sin. I believe in grace wholeheartedly. I shared with you my testimony. You know, many of you probably heard it. I've made some colossal mistakes in my life. I will never underestimate the power of grace. You'll never hear that come out of my mouth. But in the same token, I'll never underestimate the power of his spirit. 
We have been justified by his blood, thank God, and by grace that occurred. What grace to hang on a cross and to die for you and me. When we didn't ask for it, and we certainly didn't deserve it. But we can't forget that we have been sanctified by his spirit. We've been set apart for what? Holiness. I know people are worried about coming across as arrogant. I I don't want to come across like I'm better than anybody, self-righteous, goody two-shoes. I'm not holy. No, you're right. You're not. None are righteous, not one. But we can be the righteousness of God in Christ because he is in us. We have to remember that. It isn't just about the forgiveness side. There's the sanctified side as well. We have been empowered and equipped to be overcomers. Many have a form of godliness, but they have refused to allow the power of the Holy Spirit to transform their lives. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That means when I take on the mind of Christ, I'm not going to think about some of the things I think about in the natural. I'm going to think like he thinks. We're in dire need of revival. And I want to witness it. Let it begin with me. And I ask today that you make the same commitment. Join me in this. Let it begin with you. You know, you, you say, God, what would you have me to, to share <laughs> with the people? I spoke at the men's retreat, and I prayed a lot about that. You know, and as you know, we had a general theme, so it kind of, all right, I suppose I should present something on that general theme. But it's interesting. I prayed with Glenn and I pr- prayed with Jesse and other gentlemen, but I spoke with Glenn a great deal and prayed with him a great deal uh, because he was bringing out a message. I didn't want to know what he was bringing out, and he didn't want to know what I was going to bring out. We just wanted to pray and just see what the Lord had. We weren't going to break it down so strictly, hey, brother, you do this and you do this. We didn't do it that way. There was a Pastor Dennis who spoke there as well. I never met that man until Saturday when he came to speak. I didn't know what he was going to bring out. I will tell you that Glenn got up and he started talking about the importance of prayer and the importance of studying your word and digging into the word on a daily basis. We all know that. But how many really practice it? Outside of church today, how many actually have opened up their Bible over the week? You don't have to answer that. I think we get it. How many prayed outside of praying for your food? How many prayed? So Glenn addressed that. Dennis got up and spoke, and I thought, man, that brother stole my message. This guy was speaking the same exact thing. He was talking about repentance and that being at the heart of revival. He gave two messages. The other one he was talking about, you know, tilling up that soil that is your heart and moving forward. Why do you suppose that happened? Why do you suppose that the Lord laid those things that mesh so perfectly? They fit like a glove. I'm just going to take a, take a leap of faith here and say he probably did that because we needed to hear it. By no means do I ever want to come here and go, God, let me just lay something heavy on them. Let's bring the old fire and brimstone kind of messages. But you know what? You used to hear a lot of fire and brimstone messages because it needed to be presented. And you know what? 
in spite of how kicked back we are today and how easy we take it at times, we need to hear it today. It's a fact. I need to hear it. I open this message by telling you, I'm preaching to the choir on this one. I am. I have challenges in my life, and I'm with help from the Lord, I'm very successful at avoiding them, but I'm going to tell you that sometimes I don't, sadly. And it breaks my heart because the desire in me is to serve him wholeheartedly. I want to be a better man, better than I am today. I want to see weeks from now, months from now, years from now, that I'm way better than I was today because he just kept changing me. He just kept fine-tuning, kept knocking off all the, the rough edges so that I become more like him so that when he looks at me, he sees himself in me. I don't want to do anything with my thoughts, with my words, or with my actions that blanket his Holy Spirit, that hide that spiritual man that's in me. I don't want to just talk the talk. I want to walk the walk. I want to be more than a weekend warrior. I actually want to live for the Lord between Sundays. In this church, we talk about connect, grow, and serve. We do pretty well at connecting. We come here every Sunday. We fulfill our weekly spiritual responsibility by coming to church. Really, is that it? Is that as good as it gets? What about growing and ultimately serving? As Christians, aren't we supposed to enjoy the things of the Lord? I mean, we are. <laughs> it's a fact. We've gotten so caught up in this fast-paced society, this microwave kind of Christianity. Man, I need this stuff now. Bada boom. The message was 30 minutes. You know, Jeff needs to wrap this up. <laughs> we need to be done with that. I can remember times during the Jesus movement, we had no problem having met his sermons and, and prayer services way into the wee hours of the morning, even knowing we had to go to work the next day. I was young then, but my dad did. And we'd get up very early in the morning, go to work and do our thing and not worry about it because we were giving it up for God. So we talk about revival. In reality, should we need to be revived? Shouldn't revival just be kind of a, an uplifting an exhortation to the people? Shouldn't it just be kind of some encouragement? Shouldn't be, we be walking in a state of perpetual revival? We have the spirit of the living God in us, and when we submit to him and yield to him and resist temptation by the power of his spirit, we can be more than conquerors. We can resist temptation. We can live very different lives. I'll bet you everyone in here has either been involved in a sport or a hobby, or something where you have given it your all. You had somebody who died for you. Greater love has no man than this, and a man laid down his life for his friends. And he, he, he did it all for you. When we were in the worst condition, if I was righteous, I didn't need a savior. I didn't need somebody to die for me. He took me in in spite of me. Shouldn't we give him our all? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church once a week. How many people say that? You hear that word in society all the time. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Brother's over there doing drugs and <laughs> doing whatever. We have to take a very serious look at ourselves. Revival starts with introspection, humble introspection. You've got to take a look at the man or woman in the mirror and go, where am I in relation to my God?
we should be participating in things that will ensure our spiritual growth. You know, we talk about these light groups and people getting involved in that. I'm all for this. I'm all for this model of connect, grow, and serve. I think it's fantastic. I think it is sure to bring about spiritual growth in people. But how many people, and it will make us effective in the Great Commission, spreading the word, we're going to go out and serve others. But man, how can you serve others when you haven't even grown yourself? How does a baby feed milk to somebody else? We've got to connect. I'm going to tell you, there is nothing in you that wants to go to a light group. There's nothing in you that wants to get up and pray in the morning or in the evening. There's nothing in you, in you, in the flesh. There's nothing in you that wants to study the Bible. Absolutely not. But there is that spirit man, that new creation we are in Christ Jesus, who loves it. And unfortunately, that spirit man or spirit woman in us has become emaciated. We stop feeding the spirit. What happens when that occurs? You die spiritually. You'll be in dire need of revival. I need to revive this person. You don't give food and you don't try to resuscitate or revive somebody who's already alive and and vigorous. It would be wasted on a person such as that. You revive those individuals who need resuscitating. What's your spirit, man, your new creation look like? Are they in need of reviving? I'm not here to blast anybody. I'm preaching to the choir. We've got to take a serious look at where we are. I love every one of you in here, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. But we will do nothing that doesn't start here. Let it begin with me. Forgive me, God, for those areas in my life that separate me from you. Forgive me for those things that inhibit the flow of your spirit, the free-flowing of your spirit in my life. Forgive me of it. Let it begin with me. Let it begin with you. I ask you to join me in that. This is a little bit different service, and and we have a little time. I, I microwaved it a little bit for you. I did this in the first service. I just ask everybody to come forward if you're comfortable with it. And let's just pray together. Now, this isn't Jeff being separate up here. He's, a, well, he's on the platform. I don't, I don't even want that. I'll come down there with you. Let's just come forward and have a time of, of introspection. If you're not comfortable with that and you want to sit in your seat, that's all good. There's no condemnation with that. But I just think let's join together. I want to connect with people. I want to see us do something different. As you saw, I gave you that history and those examples because I wanted you to recognize it started with individuals and then it moved to their community and their churches and then it moved to the nation. Is it a lofty thing to suggest that we could be the beginning of a revival that spreads beyond us? I want to be a different church than the cookie-cutter churches that you see. That sounds insulting. Man, how that brothers just say that? Take a look around. Churches are the same almost throughout. I want to know that people walk through this door and something happened to them. They made contact with God because we conduct our services in a way that lifts him up. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Lift him up. And you can't lift him up if you got crud in your life, 
If your heart is polluted, it will not happen. You go, man, this brother's bringing a fire and brimstone message. You're right, I am. I had to take a look at myself. I figure I'm not so unique. If I needed to hear this, then it's possible that you did too. But I really do care about you guys, and I want to I break down barriers and all that kind of stuff. There's nothing wrong with just having corporate prayer, crying out to the Lord. You know, so let's do it. Let's just come together. And, and uh, again, if you're not comfortable coming up to the altar, that's all good. But, uh, but uh, you know, I just like to, like to give it a go for anybody who's interested. Just come forward and pray. We all need it. We all need to be strengthened. While you're coming forward, I just want to share something with you real quickly. We know that God can do everything. And that he'll fulfill all of our needs according to his riches and glory. And that encompasses everything. That's what we need on a spiritual level. But I will tell you that it is very important to have somebody a natural person, a human being, to have contact with somebody else, to have an accountability partner. And while we pray, I would encourage you to seek the Lord about that, to say, hey, who is it, Lord, that you would have me connect with? Somebody that I can trust, that I can share things with. I know they're not going to be condemning me, but they're going to they're tell me like it is. And I, in turn, can do the same to them. They can trust me, and I can, I can you know, share things with, you know, about them. We need that. We need to make a connection with one another. This is great. We're connected here right now. But I don't want to see this just be some kind of one-time thing, a temporal thing, and then it fizzles out and we didn't think about this service anymore. I want to be different. I want to be better than I am now. I said that, and I'm, I'm going to bring that home. I want to be a better man. And that's all about us connecting together, not forsaking the assembling ourselves together as a matter of some is, but even so much more as the day approaches. That's kind of talking, you seem like assembling in a church type of thing, but it also could mean with accountability partners or what have you. When you're struggling before the sin grabs, you know, the temptation grabs a hold of you and you actually commit to it, why not call out to God first, obviously, but call out to that accountability partner. Man, I am struggling with this or that. Maybe the sin in your life is lust. I was at a men's retreat, as I said, that is a big industry. It's a probably a billion-dollar industry. Why? Because lust sells. And it's not just a man's thing, but we certainly know that that's an issue. And it's an issue even in the church. Pornography is a big, big problem. They say that 65% of people in churches have an issue with pornography. That means that today, more than half of the people I spoke to looked at pornography recently. That's a problem. We serve a holy God I'm confident he's not real cool with that. Maybe your issue is anger. Maybe your issue is hatred because people weren't always so nice to you. They rejected you or you at least felt like that. That was your perception of their behavior. And so you have hatred in your heart or anger. Or maybe you're divisive and you like to gossip. Whatever the case may be, sin is sin. It takes on many different forms. And so I would say today as we've come up here, let's just pray. God, take it out of me. I'm going to be candid with you. Confess your faults one to another. You guys have seen me when I was heavier. I talked about that before. I've lost weight, and I'm, I'm still going to probably lose a little bit more here. But the bottom line is, I had a lust for food. I will tell you another thing. 
please understand this and take it for what it means. I have issues with lust as well. Am I looking at pornography? No, not necessarily. But there are times that you see things and you maybe don't turn your head as quickly as you should. Maybe you let a thought get in there and you entertain the thought. See, thoughts are going to come. You have your carnal mind to contend with and the devil and peer pressure. But these things come into your mind. Do you build a nest there for them to, you know, to go in and maybe even lay eggs so you can have more nastiness? You know, the bottom line is we got to keep our thoughts in captivity and really, really do what we can to our part to get closer to the Lord. So I'm confessing to you. I prayed about it. Actually, at the men's retreat, we all addressed it. We said, you know what? If we got nothing out of this, out of this men's retreat, let's go away with this. Lust is a problem with men, and we're going to fight it, and we're going to fight it together. I had people who came up to me and said, hey, man, I want you to be my accountability partner. They took it seriously. I want these men to come back, and it not be a momentary thing that we change together, and that we move in our city and actually do something. Well, it starts right here, and I thank you all for coming up. I thank those of you who are back there. I know you'll pray with me, so let's just pray together. You know what? Where I come from, we had corporate prayer. Corporate not meaning that multiple people pray at at one time because I I don't oppose that necessarily, but I think when we have to pray individually, you pay very close attention to what you sound like. So don't let it just be me praying. You know, I'm I'm confident when Jesus walked by and people needed healing and deliverance that they, it wasn't just a one, okay, you go first and then you go. They just shouted out, Jesus, help me. Jesus, I've had a problem with lust. I was a glutton. I want to be different. Jesus, help me. So can we do that? Can we break through this formality? Let's just cry out to him together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we've had. And I thank you for what you laid upon my heart, Father God, because I believe we need it. I ask you to remove any sin that exists in my life. If I don't recognize it, bring it to my knowledge, Father God, because I know that's a first step and me becoming a different man, a better man. And I know I can't overcome in my flesh, but man, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So God, I call upon you now. Deliver me, set me free from anything that separates me from you. And I pray this for my brothers and sisters that are here, Father God, as we cry out to you, deliver us, heal us. Bring it to their recognition as well, Father God. Whatever exists in their life, bring it to their attention. I want to be different. I believe that they want to be different as well or they wouldn't be here. We know that the world is not looking for a close facsimile. To the, we know that Christians shouldn't be. And we know that the world, when they come to you, they're not looking for a close facsimile to the world. They're looking for you. They're looking for something. And we happen to know that it's you they're missing. So, Father God, I, I ask for your forgiveness for any compromises we've made in this church any tolerance we've demonstrated, anything that we've allowed in here that is not part of what you want. May we never do anything that inhibits the free flow of your spirit in our lives and in our services. May we come here where we connect, Father God, and walk away reinvigorated, strengthened, motivated, Father God, and that it wouldn't be a temporal thing. God, we would take it with us wherever we go. And that God, we would in spite of what the carnal nature wants and the carnal man wants, we would involve ourselves in activities that are sure to bring about spiritual growth. 
God, I pray that you give us an insatiable appetite for your word and for prayer, Father God. And I mean that, insatiable, that we can't get enough of you. Because what we're seeing isn't that we're walking in the flesh anymore. We're seeing that we begin to walk in your spirit. You're amazing, Father God. May we be ever mindful of all that you've done for us and the fact that you deserve it. If for nothing else, may may our minds be different in the sense that we think that it's got to be about us. The sense of entitlement, God, forgive us for it if we've ever entertained those kind of thoughts. We see a perfect example in you. It wasn't about you getting stuff for you. It was about you giving. And God, may that be how we go about our days. That we would receive what we can from you so that we can freely give. Freely we received. Let it be that we freely give, Father God. That we give in our services. We give at our light groups and the various meetings that we have. And that we give it out to the world, Father God. If we're to have tent revivals, if we're to go to parks and play music and offer food and fluids to people during the summer, whatever, just lay these things on our hearts so we can reach out for you and serve others. I want to see this church grow and change. And let it begin with me and let it begin with them. I say these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. You're dismissed. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.